you know, I just read this wonderful book called The Book of Joy, uh, which is a conversation between the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu. And I, I really didn't expect to enjoy it. I thought, God, this is going to be woolly uh, stuff. <laughs> you sure, know? Sure. And it's a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in the book, and I, I know this because I'm busy trying to write about it at the moment, you know, question is a question that is put to Tutu and the Dalai Lama, in fact, by a young South African in a letter, which says, you know, how can we experience joy and pleasure when we are in struggles that deal with misery and depravity and trying to change the world? And Tutu's response to it, and I wish I had it in front of me to quote to you, but is basically to say, you have to keep joy alive. You have to mm-hmm. celebrate joy all of the time because by celebrating joy you remain attractive to other people and you inspire people in that way and i think that's critical and i think that is sometimes one of the problem of activists is that if you lose your humanity you can never appeal to people on the human wow. basis and so some of us have to refine Mm-hmm. Our humanity. I hear that. Not that we lost our, hu- you know what I'm trying to say. I, mean, I, I do, know. I do. Yeah. No, 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 absolutely. I think it's just, it's just, it's resonating so deeply with me right now. I think this joy has felt so far, you know, and joy has felt like an indulgence, you know. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it's just really liberating to kind of hear that joy is necessary. Yeah. You know. And you can find it in all sorts of places and in all sorts of ways if you look, if you see. Yeah what's going on around you. And that's the other problem is that we've lost the ability, many of us, particularly like us who work as activists, to actually see the world around us on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Keep your eyes open, smile at people, look into people's faces, Mm. greet people on the street, notice the morning, notice the dawn, recognize when it rains, smell the earth after it rains, um, you know? Mm, absolutely. And you'll be stronger for it, <laughs> more energy. <laughs> this is the Freedom After podcast by the Nelson Mandela Foundation. My name is Nawo Mohopa, and you're listening to Mark Haywood. Maybe some, some weeks ago now, we had a panel discussion with um, this artist, Sri Lynn White. So she was born of, um, I believe, Japanese... Her, her parents were one part Japanese and, uh, and then British, and she grew up in Kenya. Mm. So, you know, very much othered in, in, in multiple ways, mm. you know. And, that, um, and she described her interactions with... Um, her peers um, in school in particular and being kind of looked at with half admiration, half contempt, half kind of, you know, alien in that way. Um, and I, can, I think I can relate as well. I think when I was in primary school, so I grew up in the townships and going to primary school, I went, you know, luckily, I, I, my parents worked um, to put me into a, a primary school in the suburb. Um, and white people were fascinating. <laughs> Here they were, you know, um, these, these, these people that are on the TVs and the magazines and, you know, everything that looks like life and, and livability and, and freedom, you know. Here they were breathing. <laughs> Whiteness is something that 
preoccupies me quite a lot because I think that white people don't understand whiteness and white people don't understand white power or at least they pretend ignorance and naivety of it and it affects the way that they relate to black people in every respect and I think that the way white people are conditioned from childhood instills racism into all of us and some of us learn to shake it but even those of us who learn to shake it sometimes get surprised by residues that that you find even in yourself you know I, I'm a uh, I'm an African <laughs> I was born in Lagos in Nigeria but of uh, English expatriate uh, parents and you know went to a English private school and so much of my life has been surrounded by attitudes of deeply embedded racism which is not overt it's not sort of AWB type racism it's uh, it, it, it's 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 something that is much more deeply embedded into a generation of of, of white people so you know I, I from an early age rebelled against that but I'm saying this to you because even though I rebelled and sought to re-educate myself and reconscientize myself and change attitudes that may have been there you still occasionally stumble across these Pavlovian <laughs> uh, uh, thought patterns. Yeah. You know, I grew up in, 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 in Nigeria and then in three cities of Ghana and then arrived in Khabarone in 1977 as, as a 13-year-old. Mm. But, you know, I felt that I'd grown up as a, as a kid in, in Africa, so suddenly South Africa loomed on the border and Botswana in the 1970s and the and 1980s felt like a very liberated country. Mm. Now some of that naivety that I have about what was going on in Botswana sure. at that time has, has fallen away because it wasn't quite as rosy as I imagined it. But in my 13, 14, 15 year old state, mm. you know, a country where you had a president, Soretsi Karma, married to a white English woman, mm. where there was relative peace and harmony amongst people for me became almost the defining moment of my subsequent life because then I felt okay there's South Africa yeah I have to fight that mm. and by accident and by design in all the years after that that's what I mm. I came to do I don't have fantastic memory of primary school because I'm mm about 30 years further from it than you are. <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> um, but I, I had a brief uh, experience of primary school before I was sent off as an eight-year-old to a boarding school in England. So I, I, my primary school was in Kumasi in uh, central Ghana. Um, and, you know, I, I think, again, it, I think it was a profound experience and it shaped my non-racism because you went to primary school as a white child and I can actually talking to you picture my class suddenly <laughs> uh, um, 
in a predominantly uh, amongst predominantly black children. Mm. And, you know, I never experienced any sort of ostracization as, as, as a white child. I experienced, and, and I see it looking at children of that age today, the relationship of equals that we start our lives with, yeah. in some ways oblivious to race. Yeah. And then as we grow older, we grow apart and are made to grow apart. Part of it is class becomes a much bigger factor and given the overlap of class and race in our country and throughout most of Africa, mm. that becomes the, the departure point, mm. uh, funnily enough. And I think that that was my departure point. And, and I think, you know, my naivety, and I talked about my Botswana naivety, was that I thought you know, Ghana, Nigeria, and then Botswana were wonderfully fair, equal countries, paragons of independence and equality and non-racism. But only later did I learn what we've learned so painfully in South Africa, that independence freed many black people, but left many more as slaves because leaders failed to carry the promise of freedom into deep going transformation that sets everybody free. And that was that was basically, I think, what was going on in Botswana when I was a white kid happily, you know, between the ages of, of uh, 13 and 16 or 17, you know, wandering around the streets of Habarone uh, with black friends, laughing, going, getting drunk, uh, falling in love, uh, all those sort of things. And, and it was beautiful. I mean, it, you know, it, it, even if I'm saying to you that in some ways it was possibly ephemeral yeah. and didn't reflect what was really going on, it was still profoundly important for me as somebody who managed to move away from the racism of my nation, the racism of my of, of, of white people mm. and, and, and so on. I'm interested in with that kind of upbringing in that childhood. Mm. Um, what happens next? And how do you then continue to navigate the world, you know? So maybe could you share with us more about your childhood um, and your younger years, I suppose, and moving to Britain and perhaps um, your work with the Labour Party as well. Mm. Through the lens of freedom, of course, in the sense of where did you feel you're most free during that childhood? But at the same time, it's a weird question I have right now. <laughs> I think what I want to ask is, with that kind of consciousness, how did you fare in London, I think it was? Well, my youth is a hodgepodge of very different things in, in some ways. I was very privileged. My, my parents are not, they, they started lives as working class people. They grew into middle class people. But that's important if you come from Britain, because class was always very, very important in Britain and, and, and traditions and of, of class. But because they worked for Barclays Bank, you know, I was sent away to a boarding school. And so my privilege began at boarding school being sent to a, a school that was formed in the ninth century. 
uh, in England, in, in one of the oldest cities of England, uh, York in northern England, and having access to the best in culture, in literature, in teaching, mm. in a beautiful school that I said is very, very old. And so that taught me a strange sort of freedom. It taught me the freedom of education, the freedom of literature, which has always been my passion throughout life. And that freedom and that liberation clashed with my growing political consciousness that was shaped initially by my experience in South Africa and Southern Africa. So like a defining moment for me was, as I said, when we moved to Botswana in 77 and Steve Beaker was murdered. Mm -hmm. That really, you may find it hard to believe, but for a 13 year old, that for me was, you know, it shook yeah. me mm. because it was just over there, 20, 30 kilometers down uh, over, over the border. Um, I then sort of began, began to become a little bit of a rebel in, amongst young people in Khabarone. Uh I caused a terrible upset in 1980, 80, I think, or 81. You know, the golf clubs in colonial societies or post-colonial societies, golf clubs mm. were the center, often the center of white power. <laughs> Mm. where a few black people were, were mm. let in, uh, people who were high in business or high in government. And, <clears throat> you know, in December, New Year's Eve, 1980, I think it was, I caused a scandal because that night I got together with the people who worked as caddies in Khabarone Golf Club. Mm. And at midnight sang Nkosi Sikaleli, wow. Africa, <laughs> uh, which of course, you know, our national anthem, well, it wasn't our national anthem then, really a very uh, innocent behavior, mm. but was seen as a, a travesty. You know, I was told I must apologize for it and so on, and my family were offended. That had, a, doing that shook me a little bit and the response mm. to that. And then I, the other thing that I think kind of took a, naive rebelliousness and helped to shape it a little bit was that, well, two things, I'll touch on them very briefly. I was lucky enough to work as a trainee journalist for a month in Johannesburg in 1982, in the summer of 1982, where I met and worked with Doc Bikicha, the famous Doc Bikicha and Sophie Temer, two journalists then who took me under their wing, God knows why. <laughs> they wanted to take me under their wing, but they mm. took me under their wing mm. and they took me to Soweto and explained to me about apartheid and about oppression and, and, and so on. That moved me. And then two years later, uh, but as I was between school and university, I spent six months at a place called Vilgespreit Fellowship Center, which is in Rudderport on, sure. on the West Rand. And it was a, in those days, it was a complete hotbed of the UDF was being formed, the South African Council of Churches, Tutu was closely associated with it. There was this family called the White Families, ironically, who were the most wonderful non-racist. And, and in this little space of Vulgar Sprite Fellowship Center, surrounded by conservative Rudderport and conservative mm. Florida and with security police frequently parked at the gate of the property watching who was going in and out, there was this this incredible space where 
people dreamed and imagined and lived together and cast you know black and white and and, and that was a really moving and that was really the turning point that that said to me okay my life is going to be about this struggle i don't know what that oh. really means but but there's no going back from from that so i had to leave very quickly uh because of the security police and i went back to england and went to oxford university so again this very sharp mm. juxtaposition one minute i'm in the in the forge of the mm. anti-apartheid struggle at a critical moment mm. in south africa the next minute I'm at Oxford <laughs> University okay. uh, I mean, for three years. I mean, a couple of other people, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, with Boris Johnson, by the way, as, as no, literally in my college at the same in the same year as me. Um, That's something. <laughs> but in Oxford University, at a time when Britain, where British society was going through a very traumatic period, because it was the beginning of neoliberalism. Nobody called it neoliberalism those days, but Margaret Thatcher had come to power. So I went to the Ivory Towers in the same year as a one-year strike by the British mine workers. Oh, wow. a, a absolutely amazing, beautiful, historic turning point strike where mm. mine workers went out on strike for a year. And, and so, you know, that's where I again began to deepen my understanding about race, about class, about mm. society. Maybe this is also a turn now back to notions of identity. Yeah. When you left Section 27, you did so on very particular reasons. Um, and I'm wondering if you want to share some of those with us, but I'm also related to that. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about this question of, I'm going to say self-abnegation. Mm. There's a way, um, and I know it's a it's a tradition that kind of began in, began in Marxism around positionality and declaring one's positionality, but... I think, in, at least in my generation and in my reading of it, um, increasingly has been that it's not so much positionality, but it's self-abnegation, you know? Um, so so uh, an article open with, um, listen, um, I want to write about Stockfells, for instance, um, but I just want to say that I, I, I've never, and, I, and I'm not, and I'm not part, and I, and I, and I you know what I mean? <laughs> and I think what's interesting for me is that instead of, what's the word? seeing through one's eyes, you know what I mean? Um, some of that can sometimes read as um, half-seeing, you mm. know? It's a, it's a tricky question, and if I'm understanding you right, you know, I can answer the easy part first. Let me try the easy part, and then I'll come to the more difficult part. You know, I joined the AIDS Law Project, which became Section 27 in 1994, and I thought I was going to join it for three months. I was recruited by Zaki Ahmad. Zaki was a friend and comrade of mine. I was with him the day he was diagnosed with HIV, disappeared for a few years, came back running the AIDS Law Project with Edwin Cameron, drew me in, and then it became a 20-year <laughs> odyssey. <laughs> And it became a 20-year odyssey because in that struggle I met wonderful people who I loved, who inspired me, whose lives I felt committed to, uh, that I wanted, not me personally, but through a movement to save or to honor if it was people who died in the course of that, that struggle. Um, and that 
kept me going and every day presented a new challenge. But in that being a founder of the TAC and then later Section 27, those organizations for me were always just vehicles. Uh, they weren't about, it wasn't ever about my power. It was about trying to build power of other people. It was about trying to, to use those organizations to give capability, autonomy, energy to, to people who I knew had that, but it's suppressed. And I saw it in some of the poorest people in TAC, and it's a very strong belief of mine. You know, I, I remember a young woman called Sarah Tlatlele who had AIDS, and I went to meet her during a court case to get an affidavit from her, and she lived in Sharpeville. And the first time I met Sarah, I went to her house, I'd been told to go and see her, and Sarah was in a little, you know, uh, matchbox house in Sharpeville, and she was sitting in a corner of a room, rejected by all of her family. It wasn't even a family, it was her uncles, but they rejected her, eating out of a saucepan because they wouldn't let her eat out of, a, out of using a plate and their knives and forks and so on crying continuously this most pitiful broken figure her son had been born with hiv for reasons i don't have time to go into today but you know working with sarah over the next three years sarah grew in three years into this most powerful beautiful self-confident dignified i live with hiv person who could talk on the TV and so on. And that power resides in everybody. That power does reside in everybody. And the, and the question is how do those of us with power work to enable that power in people who think that they don't have power and who are too ground down by the misery and the depravity and the indignity of day-to-day -day existence. So for me, Section 27 was a journey and it was wonderful and I learned an enormous amount from it. But I was always conscious of a couple of things. One was that I was a white person leading a social justice, white middle-class privileged person who went to Oxford. Went to Oxford. <laughs> and that wasn't wrong, but it wasn't right either. And I thought that Section 27 needs leadership, that again, more people will identify with. Um, so that was part of the thinking. It wasn't the only part of the thinking. We'd also, Adila Hassim, who was my co-founder of it, and I had, we, we, crea we, we created a very particular culture in Section 27 in the organization where everybody was equal everybody was encouraged to participate in planning the strategy of the organization so we grew people in the organization and there came a point when we could step back fortunately uh, and we handed over and i handed over to a team that was made up entirely of women and ex a new executive leadership didn't have one single man on and an executive director who was a black woman and i was happy to be able to do that uh, and I then had to take a plunge and think well what am I you know wh what comes next and I didn't really have a fully clear idea but the other thing the more difficult thing of what you're saying is 
it's, and it's again partly where I am now is you know a lot of people in the struggle this is not unique to me at all think that an essential part of the struggle is self-sacrifice sacrificing your personality uh, uh, kind of dissolving yourself and your interests in in the struggle not projecting yourself mm. uh, particularly not drawing attention to yourself and that's a, a heroic tradition in one ways but it's a, it's a de self-defeating tradition in another way because what I'm increasingly learning is you have to own yourself yeah. in some ways <laughs> and you have to to give space to the person that you really are often in the struggle you have to suppress the things that may matter the most to you so I'm at heart I'm a writer at heart I'm a poet at heart I'm a a lover of life and and so on that's what I wanted to be in life mm. But for many years, I stopped writing poetry altogether. And I didn't allow my soul time to breathe. Mm. Um, now I'm learning that you can be a better revolutionary, you can be a better activist if you breathe yeah. and if you joy and if you admit to joy. And so you've been a part of a few institutions. You've, you've founded many as well. Um, and I'm curious about your reflections on, it's not institutionalism, but that whole orientation of attempting to create freedom, you know, um, and how efficient using institutions um, has been. Yeah. You know, um, I'm thinking on my feet as, as I answer your questions. You know, for about a decade, I believed that the crucial thing was to build a revolutionary party uh, that was capable of organizing poor people, organizing the working class, uh, overthrowing capitalism as we know it, and uh, building socialism through ensuring that poor people uh, were paid properly, were educated properly, had access to proper healthcare services, etc. Et, et so, so in those days, the idea was we have mass support for the ANC. That's the party that the people have chosen. But the leadership of the ANC is a problem. And if only we could have a revolutionary leadership to the ANC, we could transform this society fundamentally away from its colonial roots, from its capitalist roots, and we could genuinely create bread, peace, and land, and, and, and so on and so on. From that, I developed a very different set of ideas, which was around, which was from the, the, you know, from the time of the birth of our constitution about building civic organizations and civil society, and using the framework of the law, and in our case, the constitution, to build power amongst all people on the ground, uh, to struggle for rights, yeah. and to use human rights as the reorganizing center of society. Yeah. And 
That was a very, very rich experience. I mean, I was one of the founders of the, of the Treatment Action Campaign. You know, we started the TAC literally with 10 of us. We had no idea what we were starting, to be honest with you, when we started it. Again, it was a sense of injustice and we have to fight and we have to start a campaign against the injustice. But, but we decided from the beginning with the TAC that, you know, white middle class people at a university like me were not going to have the power and did not represent the demographic of the AIDS epidemic in South Africa. So we had to build a movement of poor people, of black people, of people living with HIV, of queer people who would have the power to do that themselves. And I think the TAC was, a, was, was successful because it went from 10 people to about 50,000 people at one point, 50,000 volunteers. But it also had a huge resonance in society. It, it, it had a moral, it had a huge moral weight that, that drew the whole country behind it. And at a time when the ANC and Thabo Mbeki still had kind of political hegemony, it was about the only thing that was able to challenge that in, in those, those years. And, and for me, that became a, a model about how do you build people's power to bring about reforms from below. I guess the key, th the, the key development in my own thinking was we're not going to have a big bang revolution that can change everything overnight. So let's work within, not that I like capitalism or that I accept capitalism, but let's build an alternative within the framework of what we have. And I think the constitution helped a great deal uh, with that because the constitution is a constitution that is our supreme law and it says that everybody has everybody is equal that that that, that government must steer our country towards social uh, justice that everybody has a right to dignity that everybody has a right to, to to freedom so those were very very powerful tools and for me they became game changers but i'm in a new phase now which i think reflects the fact that in the last few years the world has changed and South Africa has changed a great deal, which is that I'm starting to realize that that a constitution can only work in the way that I hoped that it would work if everybody subscribes to it. But if power doesn't subscribe to the constitution, then you're banging your head again. You can get certain reforms and certain improvements. I mean, we saved, and I'm not exaggerating, we've, we, we've prevented millions of people from dying of AIDS uh, through our campaign. But, but can you sustain and bring about a great change? And today, I don't think that, for all that it says, I don't think that big business subscribes to the Constitution in this country. It subscribes to what it likes of the Constitution, uh, uh, the political part and the accountability part. It doesn't su subscribe to the equality part and the social justice and the social reorganization of society that our Constitution envisages. And increasingly, I don't think government subscribes to the Constitution because I think they betrayed the contract that underlies the Constitution. So now I'm grappling and I'm talking, you know, today I've been Today I met with Kumi Naidu, you probably know, very well-known veteran uh, activist in our country. And I'm going around lots of people and having conversations. And the start and the finish point of the conversation is activism has to change. I don't have the answers. Can we work together to try and find the answers? Can we find a new language? Can we find a language that will 
resonate with poor people again, that will mobilize, that will politicize poor people? What, what are we doing wrong? You know, yeah. we can't just be self-satisfied because we can win a court case or we can win this or that. If society, if, if in spite of everything, society gets more unequal, more depraved, more violent, yeah. no syst systemic change. I don't have the answers and I'm very aware that I don't have the answers, but <laughs> I'm searching hard. <laughs> I hear you, I hear you. I can't remember who I was talking. Yes, I remember talking to, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say people of a particular generation. <laughs> um, and in particular people who well, I find, you know, progressive and um, often have been activists, many of them anti-apartheid activists. They are often kind of rallied under the term democratic socialists. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, um, m many, many uh, discussions about Marxism and it's always been the lyrical wax that people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm curious about your relationship to, to Marxism, to, you know, these political ideas, these assemblages and kind of groupings and ideologies. Um, and, and how did you navigate them? Why did you navigate them? And uh, I guess I'm asking about um, your internal habitat and your internal processes and your personal needs. Mm -hmm. um, and how, and how, or if at all, have those been a part of seeking now large-scale political action and movements in that way? Yeah. When I went back to England from South Africa, I went back as a angry person, but with no clear political ideas and no ideology and no real understanding of the world. I just had a sense of what was right and what was wrong. Um, and then at Oxford, I, on my staircase, what we call staircases in these old ancient colleges, which was also once the staircase where a poet called Gerard Manley Hopkins lived in the middle of the 19th century, a beautiful, beautiful poet. But I had on the staircase another young student who was a member of this thing called the Militant Tendency, which was a Marxist uh, uh, tendency of the British Labour Party. He recruited me and thus began my three-year journey whilst I was at Oxford <laughs> through the writings of Marx, of Lenin, of Leon Trotsky, uh, a study of modern and ancient history through the lens of the teachings and the, and, and the discipline and the framework of, of Marxism. And it was an, an incredible journey. I mean, my real education at Oxford was the education that I had uh, outside of classes in Marxism rather than the study of literature, which was what I was meant to be doing and what I, what I loved, but, but in, in a sense, uh, skewed because I, I felt it was wrong to be immersing yourself in bourgeois literature. I hear that. Uh, <laughs> uh, at that at that moment in time, um, you know, I, I remained a, 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 an ideological, quite dogmatic Marxist, probably for uh, a decade, uh, or just short of a, of a decade. Um, I became one of the leaders of something called the Marxist Workers' Tendency of the ANC mm. uh, when I came back to South Africa. 
And I think that Marxism, even today, I think that Marxism has offered the world incredible political insights mm -hmm. and offered the world a scientific basis, what we call materialism, for understanding how history develops and for understanding class, etc. And although I kind of drifted away from Marxism 20, 25 years ago, today I still think that, you know, what Marxism taught us about class, about class struggle, about economics, about the role of capitalism, about the contradictions of capitalism, about how capitalism ultimately would eat itself, has enormous weight and can be enormously helpful. So for me, the problem is not Marxism. The problem has been the way Marxists have ah. managed Marxism. <laughs> And very often Marxists have managed Marxism in a way that became very dogmatic and sectarian. So you have to remember that Marx, you know, wrote in the middle of the 19th century. Lenin was the first two decades of the 20th century. Trotsky lived a little bit longer. The world has changed so fundamentally in the last 50 or 60 years. You can't be citing Marx and Lenin and Trotsky as if they're some sort of gods. But you can be taking the way that they looked at the world. That you can be taking their method yeah. and their fundamental insights and saying, how does that help us? Mm. Not only how does it help us uh, uh, passively understand history and politics today, but how does it help us think about the reconstruction of society that has yeah. to take place? I hear that. You know, in exile, Marxism sometimes mixed up with Stalinism, which is a whole nother discussion, but played a very important role in shaping the thinking of the Communist Party, shaping the thinking of the ANC, etc. But again, Mark, the, the fall of Marxism was precisely the, the, the paradox almost was that Marxism was a, was a method as much as it was an ideology and a set of positions. And Many modern Marxists were unable, when the world suddenly changed, our South African world in 1994, and the world in many ways in the, between the 1980s and the 1990s with the rise of neoliberalism, everything changed. We can see now, looking back, that everything changed then. But despite all this emphasis on studying politics, comrades, studying economics, study the classics, etc., we proved at that key moment unable to actually understand what was going on. And I, and I think if we had better understood what was going on, we would possibly not be in the mess that we are in today. On the other hand, I, I forgive the people who made the mistakes because in the heat of change of the late 1980s into the 1990s, in the heat of having to take over and reconstruct a society completely in the heat of the violence that was unleashed on us between 1990 and 1994 by Encarta, by the third force, etc., etc. It's not as if people were in a position to say, okay, let's take a week out and apply our minds <laughs> to what is going on in the world economy yeah, yeah, or world yeah. politics and what this means for policy and implementation and the constitution, etc. So mm. I think we could have done better, but, mm. but it wasn't easy. 
Could you talk more about about neoliberalism? I think um, a while ago, one of the interns here at the foundation asked me what uh, what is neoliberalism, and I struggled. I realized actually, I'm not entirely sure what this talk, what this what this term yeah. means. I hate the term neoliberalism, <laughs> first of all, and I apologize for having used. <laughs> and I hate the left that constantly uses the term neoliberalism as if it explains everything and as if everybody understands mm. what they're talking about when most people don't understand what they're talking about. Having said that, I think that there is meaning to this term neoliberalism and basically what it means was that you know, after the Second World War and the calamity of the Second World War and the calamity of the Holocaust and in the face of uh, 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 liberation struggles and uh, uh, colonialism and, and sh shaking off colonialism, a kind of global social contract came into being, which was based on the premise that the state had an important role to play in narrowing inequalities, in trying to make sure that everybody in every country had access to education, to healthcare services, etc., etc., and if you look at those, you know, those critical years between 1945 and let's call it 1980, you know, th there was high taxation to fund welfare states. There was this social contract de facto that was deliberately broken in the 1980s starting in England when I was at university or whilst I was at university by Margaret Thatcher and in the United States by Ronald Reagan and with a, a very well organized school of thought, of philosophy, of economics behind them and obviously behind that with a lot of power of the world's most wealthy, of large parts of, of capitalism in the world. And what it did was basically say, each one for themselves, as Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. Competition is what rules the world. We deregulate economies so that, you know, we don't worry about pollution, we don't worry now about the climate crisis, we don't worry about deepening inequality, it doesn't matter that the, the upper echelons are earning more and more, etc. And that's what has, the world has been going through for the last 30 years. And as we sit here today, we're living with the consequences of this failed ideological experiment. And the consequences are inequality on a level that, wasn't, that was last seen at the end of the 19th century a climate crisis that is literally exploding over our heads, a biodiversity crisis, barbarism in many parts of the world, the return of war, mm. etc. So it's been a disastrous mm. experiment okay. and one that we have to try and pull our way out of. Freedom After by the Nelson Mandela Foundation is produced by Showcast Media an original score by Subusile Kaba and cover artwork by Paula Manelli. The Freedom After podcast is supported by the Old Mutual Foundation. My name is Nawo Mokhopa. Thank you for listening.